Good morning and welcome to the Volume Nerd Podcast. This is your host, Davis Ransom. And today on the podcast, we are back for part two of three with Lauren Anderson of Rise Volleyball Academy to discuss evoking joy in volleyball. Interestingly enough, the other thing I've done in my life is I've been a a gymnastics coach and I did that for about eight years. And maybe that helped me understand what I was doing wrong in volleyball because in gymnastics you actually get scored on the way you do something you know if if while you're doing uh, some sort of movement in the air if your toes if your ankles flex instead of are pointed you lose a tenth of a point if you are doing some sort of aerial movement that involves twisting and during that twist your hips and your shoulders disassociate from each other, you lose points. And, but in volleyball, the only way we lose a point is if the other team scores, you know, like it, we don't, we actually don't lose points in volleyball. You can't, but the only way we can, you know, the way we score, the way the other team scores is through an outcome, not through the process, not through, you know, you don't, what, how would our game be? Our game would be so strange if every time a person passed a ball in serve receive without a perfect platform, they were deducted points. Right. You know, like that's not what happens. Our game is about outcomes. And by out, and when I say that, I don't mean the outcome of the match. I mean the, the outcome of the action on right. the ball. Um, how I, how this person in serve receive touched the ball what they did, where'd the ball go? That's what matters. Um, and then the next contact, what matters is where does the ball go? And then the next contact, what matters is where's the ball go? That doesn't really matter what you're doing. And I get it. Like many coaches believe that if we can learn these proper quote unquote, proper techniques, we're going to influence the outcome more consistently. And so I, I I'm certainly not against that thought. I just think that we come at it from the wrong direction. We most of the time we start with technique devoid of context, devoid of outcome, devoid of what we're trying to achieve instead of starting with the outcome. And so when that relates back to what you were talking about with goofy footed mm-hmm. hitters, if a girl goes in, I would, I don't know. I, I hate to always try to like put words in other coaches' mouths because I, I really have a lot of respect for every person who chooses to coach. And it's a hard job. It's a thankless job a lot of times. It's super stressful. Uh, I have way more gray hairs than I ever thought I would have at this <laughs> age. And I, th- I attribute most of it to yes. coaching. And so I, I certainly don't want to put words in a coach's mouth, but I'm going to say what I believe, what I thought for many years which is like if a girl went up to hit a ball and got a, an amazing kill just like saw the opening bounce the ball on like the 10 foot line or it doesn't even have to be that absurdly amazing just like got this great powerful kill but did it with goofy footed footwork what was my first thought 
Oh, that was pretty awesome for Goofy Great. Foot. Great. Like, mm-hmm. why the why the tag? You know, why the why that extra little bit? Why not just that was awesome? Right. You know, why not? That was just an amazing hit. Can't believe she saw the hole in the block. Love how she hit that ball to the deep corner. Why do we have to care about the way that she approached the, the, the last two steps of her approach? And I know those are, there are those who are going to say, well, it's more biomechanically efficient from a scientific standpoint to approach right left for a right hander because it allows our body to work better as a kinetic chain. Yes, maybe. Right. <laughs> you know, like there's a big maybe on that because did you check, did you do your research on that individual? Right. Or are you creating an average across all of the different people who have ever played volleyball? And if you're creating an average, that's not a good place to go when you're coaching an individual in front of you. Um, I know mm-hmm. we talked prior to the, to the podcasts um, in our previous talk about the, one of my most influential books I've ever read and as a coach, which was the end of average. And that book really pointed out to me the importance of just completely getting rid of anything I do. That's based off of an average, the, the mindset of average and, and averaging out across a, a full set of, kids in front of me and saying well this is what works for most people so you should probably do it well well, that's you're basing it on average why not go off of you know i mean karch when he goes out on the beach and decides to become to to purposefully be goofy footed to go in left right when he's playing on the sand because he feels like it gives him a more solid base to jump from and gave him more of an option as far as the range of his attack He's not, you're going to, you're doing that. You're, I mean, can you imagine a coach telling Karch, sorry, that's not, that's not kinetically, that's not biomechanically correct. So you should probably not do that. You know? And he's like, like, but I'm winning all these tournaments. (laughs) Yeah. And, and then some people would go so far as say, well, he had massive shoulder problems because of that. Do you know? Like, that's when we start getting into that idea of, you know, causation versus correlation. Like, yeah, they're correlated for sure. I can tell you they're correlated, but do you really believe, do you, can you provide evidence that there's actually causation there? You can't. I mean, there's a lot of other things going on in his life. That Part of that being the fact that he swings really hard at a lot of volleyballs over the course of his mm-hmm. career. You know, do we know that the fact that he chose to, be goofy footed on the beach is what led to his shoulder problems. No, we don't know that. And, and there's plenty of people who have quote unquote, perfect footwork who have shoulder problems, you know, and across women's and men's. And we see, you know, what's funny to me with this concept of degeneracy is it's usually the people who have the outlier style of, of swing or approach who we never hear about being injured. <laughs> yeah. You know, look at, look at, look at Clay Stanley. Right. <laughs> I mean, that guy hit a ball harder than probably almost mm-hmm. anybody. And yet you ask coaches around the world, would you teach your players to swing like that? And I think most would say no. Yeah. 
and the guy never had a shoulder problem ever so so to be be able to conclusively say if you do this when you swing at a volleyball you're going to develop shoulder problems um we we can't say that that's lying um you know so like i've gotten away from that because i've been for years i was somebody who believed very strongly against the high elbow um which is what most coaches strangely enough have taught for many years is you gotta you know especially in women's volleyball you don't see it as much in men's but in women's volleyball you saw a lot of coaches for years teaching that we had to get the elbow up high during mm -hmm. our load in order to swing and i was convinced for years that that was a a negative thing that that was bad because that would actually put more stress on the the construct of the shoulder and would lead to shoulder injuries um, but what I've gotten to now is to the point where I don't talk to my athletes about where they put their elbow. Mm. I don't, there's no conversation about that. I let them figure out what works for them. And some of the athletes have their elbow a little higher and some of them have it a little lower. But what I'm concerned with is the outcome. Where'd you hit it? Were you able to hit it past the block? Did you score? <laughs> Did right. you score? You know, like, and when you did that, did your shoulder hurt? That's an important question I've, I've learned to ask of some players when I see them go to some extremes, like doing an extreme like wrist away type swing. Or if I see them with what I would consider to be a high elbow swing, like just simply inquiring about how's that feel, you know? And they're like, oh man, I felt great. Okay, cool. I'm not going to tell you to stop. My, my perception of what you're doing is clouded, whether I want it to be or not. I am, I'm a human being, and because I'm a human being, I am predisposed to countless cognitive biases that make me witnessing you doing something already judging, prejudging everything you do in a way that doesn't apply to you at all, and it's simply based on my perception of reality. Yeah. And if, and if I then push my perception of reality on you, I limit you. It's mm, a great point. And so the only thing that we can really truly all agree on is the outcome. You know, a kid hits the ball into the net. Well, why did I hit that ball into the net? I don't know. You know, so many coaches answer that question with a definitive answer. Your elbow wasn't right. high enough. Or you didn't do this you know, a server, you didn't do this. The fact that we are able to answer that question so definitively for an athlete to me boggles my mind because you really don't know. You've just found some things that worked for a few kids at once and then it worked for a couple others. Or it's just that law of, what is it, the, the uh, returning to the mean right. thing, you know? Like you ask a kid to serve a bunch of volleyballs and they miss a few in a row and then you give them some feedback and then all of a sudden they make the next one. That doesn't mean your feedback meant anything right. to them. There's pretty good likelihood they were going to go back towards competency at some right. point in time. And, and then that convinced you that that key works. So now let's use that key with every athlete that I ever work with for the rest right. of my life. And I'm again, I've mm -hmm. done that. And now I'm like, I, it just doesn't, I don't want to, I don't care what worked for the athlete before you. I want to know what works That's for you. Point. 
And the best per and the best person to ask about works what works for you yeah. is you. That's such a great point. If if you want to go from deficit detector to strength strength finder, finder. you got to ask them great questions. Right. It sounds like that's one of the things yes. you're doing in your gym that's helping them become their best. Yes, 100%. I think that is, I think there's anything any coach could do. And I know it worked. It, I believe very strongly that it is the best thing I ever changed was to go from telling to asking more. I, there's definitely still instances where I mm-hmm. tell and I'm, you know, and, and I'm, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not even going to say that I'm still working on getting rid of those moments. I think there's always a need mm-hmm. for those moments. You know, you and I talked about before the fact that we're on a timeline as youth sports coaches, we are on a timeline. We have a limited amount of time to get kids to a certain level of ability and, and uh, competency before they move away from us and onto the next coach. And if and if we know that next coach is going to be expecting certain things from that kid, it is a responsibility of ours to ensure that that kid has those abilities. You know, if I know a kid is going to be is going to be a junior at a specific high school in my area, and is trying to make varsity, and I know what the varsity coach there is expecting from a player like that, then I better do everything I can to ensure that kid has those abilities. Or I know what the coach. In my club, if a kid is playing 15s for me on my team this year, that next year on 16s, if I know what is going to be needed of them to make that six that top 16s team next year, then I better be doing everything I can to make sure that kid has an opportunity to meet those expectations. And sometimes that does come down to telling mm-hmm. them, like just being straight up with them. You know, the the term I love for it is radical mm-hmm. candor, which is a book. And it's an amazing book that I think every coach should read because it really gets into the nitty gritty of how we can have straight up, honest conversations with athletes while still preserving Mm. their dignity. And that's something I think we leave out a lot of times is we have straight up, honest conversations with athletes that Mm. destroy. That's a great point. When you ask them great questions, one of the things you can do, and you mentioned this is just turn it back on them. Meaning like you just said, like, well, when the athlete says, well, what happened? You say, well, you tell me what happened, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're really not even asking them a question. You're telling them, you tell me. Like that way they're getting involved in their own process. And that creates that autonomy, right? And and therefore a great deal of motivation. They like that. You know what I mean? They don't, I really don't yeah. think athletes want to be told i don't think they want to be micromanaged i think there's a certain degree of security in that right but especially as they come into themselves so to speak if they start to have a little bit of experience they want to um they want to learn they want to branch out they want to have that learning experience and i think a lot of times we take that away from them with with what you're talking about we we immediately quote unquote fix them right Right. When we don't need to be fixing anything, there's no fixing to be, to be done. It's a matter of how you look at it. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing's broken. Yeah. Nothing's broken. Like, I mean, if a kid can't serve over the net, they're not broken. Like they just haven't figured it out yet. You know, I mean, I know I I said this to you and it is, I think it's when you really wrap your head around the statement, it's really important. Like just because a flower doesn't bloom, doesn't mean it's broken. Like it, 
it, my uh, business partner who's coaches our top 18s team in our club and has a very similar volleyball as well as life philosophy as me, which is awesome as far as how we work together. He said it many a times, the most important quality that any coach can have mm -hmm. is patience. I like that. You know, like, like you cannot, if you don't, if you're not willing to, sh to be patient, to let the learning process happen, then you're getting in the way of the learning process. Yes. And, and here's something I strongly believe is that it, when we explicitly define the way things are supposed to be done for an athlete, especially when it comes to the physical way. So when we detail the way they're supposed to stand, hold their arm, contact the ball when they serve, when we, and we talk about all the body parts, like this is where you hold your elbow and this is where you put your left foot and this is how you hold, swing your arm and all this stuff. I strongly believe that we are actually limiting them when we do that, um, that we are creating a model that is average and it's safe. We're, you know, like, I think that's where most of like successful volleyball program, as far as volleyball coaching programs, I'm not going to name any names because we know who I'm talking about, but I think most of them are created around the concept of how do we create a safe in like a, uh, how do we create safe players? You know, like, like players who statistically are in the positive every time, you know, you know, a concept like the, the cauldron to me as an example of that especially at youth at developmental levels where players are still really focused on learning and growing and figuring out who they are. I feel like when you institute a cauldron, especially when you're instituting it in practice and then you're basing your playing time and matches based on the results of practice cauldron input, what you're doing is you're teaching players to recognize what they already do well and only do those mm -hmm. things. And never do anything they don't do well because that's going to mess up their cauldron okay. ranking and that's going to mess up their playing time. So don't ever, if I'm not good at hitting line, right. I'm never hitting line because I'm going to mess it up a lot in the process of trying to do it. Or if, you know, and it, and I've also seen on multiple occasions, kids just choose to do nothing because doing nothing allows you to blame right. someone else in, instead of actually like trying and then making a mistake, you know, the girl in serve receive the ball served between her and one other. She just doesn't go for it because if I went for that, I would screw it up and that's going to be a bad mark. But at least now the coach has to figure out, right. should that have been mine? <laughs> you know? And, and so we create this, this quest for safe instead of this quest for great. And, you know, I just, that that was a I explored using the cauldron idea for many years, and I could just never figure out how to put it in a place in a way that actually still encouraged kids to push their limits and to do things they weren't good at, because we were constantly st st statting everything they did, and 
you know, and then of course I came across an Anson Dorrance interview, um, who, you know, he has given the legitimacy of being the person who created the, the competitive cauldron at North Carolina, the soccer program there. And he, he, he was asked about it in his, in an interview and I can't remember who it was or whatever that was interviewing him, but he, he said two different things he said about it, the competitive cauldron. He said, number one, the competitive cauldrons, the whole point of the competitive cauldron was something I could put in front of parents to help them understand why their player wasn't, why their kid wasn't playing as much as they wanted mm-hmm. them to. And then two, he said the whole, the major point of the competitive cauldrons was to find the kids at the bottom and spend uh, more time. With them. I like that. And that to me is the only legitimate use of a pro, of a platform like that. Instead of, finding the kids at the top and give them playing time. It should be to help you discover the kids at the bottom who aren't contributing as much and figure out where, how can I influence them to be better, which then makes everyone else better. You know, the whole rising tide lifts all ships things. And those two points by him who, who he is legit, you know, recognized by most people as the person who first, legitimately brought the idea of the competitive cauldron to the national scene. I, you know, I understand that it was Dean Smith who taught him the competitive cauldron, but he's the one that brought out. And then for him to say those kind of things, like, look, we never showed it to the kids. We never based playing time (laughs) off of it. We showed it to parents who came into the office to ask why their kid wasn't playing. And then we used it as a way to figure out which kids were we not connecting with well, which kids weren't jiving well within our system. And, and so that we can help them. Yeah. How could we, yeah. So how could we help them? I love that. And I think those are such great points. And what it, it sounds like to me is that you're really valuing the individual, like the differentiation between each and every individual. And, and that's going with that point you were making about the end of average. We're not going to treat you as if you're average. We're going to treat you as if you are you. You're special. You're you. Yes. Yes. But you are, you are a special individual yes. playing on a team. And that's an important distinction. It's not just that we, we are not just coaching individuals. We are but we're also coaching a team. And so there are times when the needs of the team are more important Mm -hmm. than the individual. And that's part of learning volleyball. You have to learn when your desire to explore this line hit that you're just not Mm -hmm. good at, needs to take a back seat to the fact that your team is competing in a tournament and every time you hit line, they lose a point. And so, but I don't feel like that's our call as coaches. If we step in and say, don't do that anymore, hit cross. We've taken a massive learning opportunity away from that player and her teammates. And, And so for us, yes, the number one priority in our gym is always going to be the individual athlete, but we get to that priority through teaching team unity through teaching team concepts. You know, I just had a conversation with my team on, on Thursday about 
Um, I got this from Jamie Morrison's presentation for the AVCA online virtual conference this year. Um, and one thing he mentioned, and I loved it so much, I brought it to my team, which was I, I, I asked each of my hitters, outside, middles, right sides, what is your superpower? Like, what is the one thing that the one hit you have that you really think nobody's going to stop? And do you have, right. do you even have one? Like, you know, and if you have one, why are you hitting anything else? <laughs> yeah. You know, like if nobody's stopping it, why are you hitting anything else? And, you know, I'm, I'm coaching a 15 under team and most of the girls are still 14. They haven't even turned 15 yet. Most of those girls like, they're even, they're too shy to even be like, I right. have a superpower, right. <laughs> you know, they're too humble. They're too, and then a lot of right. them just are like, I have no idea. Like I just hit the ball. My, my, my superpower is that I, I managed <laughs> to actually make hand contact. Right. Every time, you know, right. like, <laughs> um, but I have one girl who she's a pretty big jumper and she hits like a pretty devastating hard cross that will hit eight feet from the net, two feet in from the opposite sideline when she's playing left side. And I'm like, why, why would you ever hit anything else? Every time you do it, it scores. And she's like, yeah, but I want to learn how to do other things too. And I'm like, I get that. And that's totally a legitimate answer. And it's a great answer for practice. But when we go to this tournament, you're, you got to put your team first and not your self-development first. And that's part of self-development, like learning how to do that, learning how to get into that mindset of being unselfish and saying the team's goals are more important than my goals today. And so I'm going to do the one thing I know I'm great at, and I'm going to do it over and over again until somebody stops me. And then hopefully my goal is for somebody like her is that we play against a team that stops her from doing that. They cover that. They dig that. They block her because then she's going to get frustrated and she's going to be like, oh, they've stopped my right. superpower. <laughs> and it's like, all right, cool. What does any superhero do when someone is able to thwart their superpower? Right. They develop another yep. one. And so now we've got to find another an, a way to alter what we're doing to still contribute to the team instead of just willy nilly kind of just in the moment, like, Oh, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. Like, no, we, let's have a little bit more of a, a unique plan to what we're going about because it is about our team being successful, but that helps develop that individual into a, a very smart volleyball player instead of just someone who, you know, she's physically gifted. She jumps very high and, and can hit a ball very hard. And I find that a lot of kids like that, they don't really have a plan because nobody can, at this age, mm -hmm. people don't stop them. Um, there's no answer to their physicality, but she's going to get to a point where there's an answer to her physicality. And if we haven't given her the opportunity to explore how to get past that, then she's just going to have to, some point in her career, she's going to turn to a coach and say, what do I do next? And the coach is going to say, well, you right. do this. Okay. Well, why, why can't we allow her to figure yeah. that out on our own? It's a good point. Yeah. The coach, coaches don't want to take the L at the time. We, we have this sense of urgency that 
actually limits or can limit how uh, how well they're going to learn because we take away learning opportunities from them. Yeah. You know, I think that's such a great point by you. You know, and to go back to the, the team aspect, I know I speak for a lot of people when I say one of my greatest joys of volleyball is playing with the team. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it just yeah. is so fun to be vibing off each other in that, in that way. Man, that just is such a fun part of it, playing together with your, your friends, playing with you know the, the people you work so hard with to get there. It's so cool. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I first started playing the sport as a, as a doubles player, a beach player. And I think that the biggest difference for me when it comes to playing sixes versus twos is what you just spoke to that, that Mm -hmm. dance, that rhythm that can be created between six people on the court at the same time. Um, it's fleeting unless you're on a really good team. And it is a moment of absolute joy and beauty when you find it. And, you know, when you're playing doubles, it's much easier to find because it's just two of you. And if you and your partner jive, then great. You, you have fun. And you enjoy your day and you win some, maybe lose some, but you have a good time because you're, you and this one other person are connecting and interacting. It is so much harder to find that with Mm -hmm. six people or eight people or however many are subbing in and out. And so when you find that moment, it is, it is really, really, really special. And you can, I think people who have watched a lot of volleyball can see that moment in a team when they're watching them. Um, You know, I mean, you look at Stanford when they've won their national championships, it's like, it looks effortless. It doesn't even look like they're really putting as a team. It doesn't even look like any individual really is really putting out a lot of effort because they are jiving so well as a team. They're just trusting each other. They're loving each other. You know, I mean, I, I've had instances where I've watched both USA women and men, and you've seen those come out. You see that. I think a team, you see that more than any other team that I've watched in recent history is the mm-hmm. French men's yep, team. I can see that. Yeah. Um, where, where they just, they just have so much fun yes. playing together. And there's just this respect and love for each other. And they have so many such crazy different people on that team. Like you have Engape who, while I certainly don't know the guy, you, you get the sense that the guy has a pretty well-established <laughs> ego. And, and then you have other people, you know, you have the libero uh, whose last name I can never pronounce. and will never even try to pronounce um, who is the opposite. He's a guy who's just this from watching them play just super humble. And they're, they all, come together and just let the team come first and they explore the game of volleyball in a way that I personally have never seen. And it's really cool to watch and it's influenced the world. It's influenced men's volleyball at the international level. Lots of teams now are doing the things they were doing. The difference is these things that they came up with, the things that they were doing were spontaneous 
acts between that uh, were evoked or elicited out of in their, these honest mm-hmm. interactions with each other. And now people are training these things, you know, and to me, that means they're never going to be as good because the, that creativity element of it is essential to being your best. I totally agree. And I think that's such a good point. And like you said, it, it happens organically because of the relationships and because of the time spent together and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's not forced. It, it is becoming, I don't even know if that makes any sort of sense, you know? So it's, it's this really fun process of, of really learning each other on the court, learning the nuances of the game. I mean, it's super fun. Yeah. And that's where I feel like our coach, that coaches really have the strongest and the best opportunity to influence, um, both the motivation and the learning process is through creating environments that cultivate that, that cultivate the interactions, that cultivate the creativity. Um, I know another person you've had on your podcast, uh, Mark Libidu, um, he, he had a, he has a, a blog um, at home on the court where he writes some pretty amazing yeah. things about the sport of volleyball. And he's got a three-part, I don't know if it's a series necessarily, but they were three blogs that were kind of linked together because of the topic about interactions in volleyball. And the first one, if I'm not mistaken, was actually his uh, claim that the most, the, the fundamental aspect of volleyball, while, you know, if you go to a, the most coaches in our sport and say, what is, what are the fundamentals of volleyball? You know, you're going to get the same answer from almost everybody from passing hitting, blocking, setting, digging. And then you could say, well, what are the fundamentals of passing? And somebody's going to list what they believe are the keys to passing. Some people might say, well, you know, midline. Some people might say, well, this uh, angle thing or some people, whatever. That's where it gets a little more gray area. And that's when I'm like, it can't be fundamental if it's gray. Like, you know, if I ask 500 people and there's, 500 different answers. It's not fundamental. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But Mark's thing was that the fundamentals of volleyball are the interactions. If you can get the interactions between the players and the coaching staff, but in his specific instance, he was just referring to the players, six players out on the court, how they interact with each other at any given moment is the most fundamental thing about volleyball. And if you can cultivate those interactions, you're going to create a great team. And he actually... He did a study that where like he has some guy that's a very smart statistical math genius who either works for him or work he knows or whatever, who actually delved into the numbers of it. And if you looked, if you had a team of 12 people, not including the coaches, um, and you looked at how many interactions are available there, you know, so like the setter interacting with the outside hitter, that's one. The setter interacting with the right side hitter, that's two. But the setter interacting with the outside hitter and the middle, that's another interaction, mm-hmm. the combined interaction, both of them. So if you looked at all of those, it's an exponential growth thing, and it comes out, it's it's just shy of 5,000. It's like 4,800 wow. and something. I don't remember. I've asked him before, and he, he's told me. Um, 
you look at all those interactions, that's between 12 people. So it's, it's really no wonder when you have a, a team, like say you have the U.S. men's team and you have somebody retire from the team and you bring in a new middle. That changes 4,800 right. interactions. So no, no wonder we have this period of time in which we have to mm -hmm. adjust. And he's in Mark's statement is, and I fully agree with it, is that is the most fundamental aspect of our game. And so for us as coaches, that is the thing we should be focusing on more than anything else is how to uh, influence and to guide those interactions, you know, and, and it's, and that is always an external goal oriented thing. Like when so-and-so is doing this, you should be doing this, not focusing so much on how I hold my arms or how I take my footwork or what I do with my hands when I'm doing this, but more about when your setter is in this place on the court, setting the ball, what should you be doing? And I know that every coach does that stuff, but I think not every coach recognizes that that's our most powerful feedback yeah. we give our athletes. Um, this external goal oriented feedback rather than these internal body focused, uh, body part focused, uh, mm -hmm. you know, feedback that actually slows down the learning process and slows down the actual performance process as well. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I've talked to Mark about it a couple different times and I, I'm just fascinated by that concept of how do we enrich and strengthen uh, and, and explore those interactions between, um, between the athletes on our court and on our team rather than worrying so much about the technique. We, we didn't talk about this before the pod and I'm just thinking – now throughout all the teams that have won championships that I know and how they all play differently. But the one common is that they don't, they play tight. I mean, they, they're, they play well together. Yeah. You know what I mean? They have their stuff down, right. whatever their system is. There used to be this, you know, for a long time, guys were taking the ball overhand, you know, and whatever, I mean, whatever it is, whether you're in rotational or you're in the bunch read, those teams were, they knew each other. That's for sure. So I love this idea that interactions are the biggest fundamental that we can manage. I think that that's a really interesting idea. And, and it also speaks to something that we did talk about, which is how complex this whole thing is just coaching in general and how sometimes just the complexity of it all can maybe uh, steer us into taking away some of the love of the game from our athletes, uh, you know? So it's like, we, we yeah. got to make it simple and, and lovable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I mean, coaching, we, we make a lot of decisions in coaching that don't recognize the complexity of the human being in front of us. And in doing so, we rob them of their opportunity to be fully human. Um, you know, I mean, this whole social, economic impact, cultural impact, you know, a kid, 
you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll make a classic example from my own history. Again, I, I would never assume that other coaches have made the same mistakes I have. Um, I, I would hope they have, because <laughs> then I don't feel so bad, but um you know, I mean, a kid shows up late to practice and in so many gyms that I've ever been in and that I've coached in, there's a response to that. And that's, there's punishment instead of actually finding out why, you know, like just taking the time to ask, Hey, what, what, why are you five minutes late? Well, you know, this happened and my, my mom got home late from work because she was asked to do this and this happened. Like, why, why are you punishing a kid for something like that? You know, and a lot of coaches don't know, right? Coaches don't care. They just, you're late. The rule, the team rules are for every minute you're late, it's a lap around the court or for every minute you're late, it's a push up. And if you're 15 minutes late, it's 15 push ups. It doesn't matter what the reason is. And I'm here to say it does matter. We've got to make it matter because we, I don't know. I'm, I'm so against rules like that. Like I, we don't make them in our gym. There are no rules like that. They're just simply like suggestions, right? Be on time. <laughs> but if you're not on time, I'm going to come and ask you like, what's up? Why were you late? Oh, okay. Mom couldn't get you in time. You're fit. You're 14 years old. You don't drive yourself. Mom got home late from work. She she needed a bite to eat and then she got a phone call from her boss and she got you here 15 minutes late. Cool. None of that is on you. I'm certainly not punishing you for it. Mm -hmm. You know, like that stuff. I, that's again, where we, I feel like we're, we're just, we've gone too far into treating these individual players as if they were already adults who were 100% in control of their own lives when it's already when it's proven every day that even these adults who are supposedly 100% in control of their <laughs> yes. lives aren't so so why would we hold a kid to this, those standards when adults can't even meet them and you know i i just so here's my thought when it comes to that interaction thing if interactions are the fundamentals of our game which i would challenge anybody to really think deeply about being the answer to that being yes. How good are you as a coach at interaction? And if you're, and if you're not good at them, mm-hmm. how can you teach them? How can, because the, the number one way we teach the kids in a, in our gym, how to do anything is through modeling, especially when it comes to behavior. And so if, if, you know, like in our gym, we put, we say that behavior is the number one, most important thing in our gym. It's not technique. It's not volleyball. It's behavior. Uh, behavior is, you know, like a performance indicator. And if we can't, as we, if we as coaches can't model the behavior that we're expecting of the kids in front of us, then why can, why would we ever expect those kids to be able to do those things? So if the, if interactions if the way we interact with our teammates and our coaches is uh, a behavior marker for us as a, as a program, and yet our coaches can't do it the way we're asking the kids, then why would we, why would we punish the kids for it? You know, like if a kid's late because they had all these things come up in their life that they had no control over. And then a coach is freaking out because something 
was outside of their control. And believe me, this is 100% something I'm guilty of my entire volleyball coaching career. You know, a ref makes a bad call and you freak out and go crazy over it. Why? Why are we going crazy over it? Why are we freaking out over it? Because it's outside our control. Nobody freaks out over something that's inside. <laughs> that's a good control. point. That's a good point. People only freak out about things that are outside their control in hopes of influencing it, even though there probably is almost no opportunity to influence it. And I am, I'm, I'm, I'm a hothead. I've been a hothead my whole life when it comes to my interaction with refs. And it's something I've really, for the past three to four years, been putting a lot of effort into changing and it's getting there uh we'll see you know i haven't had an interaction <laughs> with a ref this season we'll see where that goes uh but you know i can't how could i ever get mad at a kid who has a hot head interaction with her teammate or with her parent or with me if i can't control my interaction with the ref um you know we again we we hold these kids to standards that we can't match, you know, like I think it was uh, Joe Ehrman who was a football player, I think played for the Pittsburgh Steelers at one point in time, wrote a book called Mm -hmm. inside out coaching. I think that's the name of the book. And one of the things he said in that book that has stuck with me since I read it was how can we as coaches take on the, the responsibility of taking young men and women and helping them become, become young adults of character and competence. If we're not that already, mm-hmm. the adults who've had the most influence on me were the adults who had that figured out. 